All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 51. Today we're looking at Exodus chapters 27 and 28, as well as Psalm 24, and Mark chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, just like yesterday, today we're going to be looking at uh, mainly the implements for uh, Israel's tabernacle, which uh, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but uh, later in the storyline of the Old Testament, these will get an upgrade when the actual temple is built. But for now, there's this, this mobile temple, this, this tabernacle, in which people will worship God. Okay, so chapter 27 begins with a description of the bronze altar. Now, what this is, is this is the altar that we normally think of as the altar that stands outside of the tabernacle proper, right? And it, it's inside the outer court. Um, and this is the area in which normal, um, clean, ritually clean Israelites are permitted to offer their sacrifices, or to have the priests offer their sacrifices. And um, this, as a lower grade of holiness than we find inside the tabernacle, and especially in the Holy of Holies, which is the highest level of holiness, um, it is made of bronze. And, uh, of course, it is acacia wood overlaid with bronze. And its size is uh, five cubits by five cubits, so like a square, and then it's three cubits high. Um, so that's probably, um, you know, a little bit higher than, or, or just about waist height. And uh, this is another one of these um, objects that is um, to be made according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain, chapter 27, verse 8. Um, it is covered with this grating on the top, um, kind of, um, and, then, and then also these, these rings, which you carry it with, because again, it is holy, and uh, so you must you must carry it with poles rather than just I don't know carry it like a like a like a couch or something. You know, you get this side, I'll get this side. Um, then we're told about the court. So this is the outer area in which this bronze altar is found, and it's not the only thing. Uh, we're going to find out in a little bit about a, a water basin, the bronze basin that is out there as well, uh, in which the priestly washings will take place. Uh, but we're not going to cover that in today's material. Um, so the court, uh, again, uh, it's not huge. The tabernacle is not this immense complex. It is 100 cubits on each side, and then the uh, the front and the back of it are 50 cubits, so it's uh, essentially 100 by 50 cubits. Um, another interesting thing to note, and this actually connects with the imagery from the Garden of Eden that I noted yesterday with the cherubim and with the lampstand functioning as a kind of uh, symbol of the tree of life, uh, as, as well as I would say the, the bread symbolizing the fellowship with God that, is, that was lost in the garden by our sin. Uh, but the tabernacle is oriented with its entrance on the east. That is very important. Um, and uh, so that's, that's where you enter it. And you may remember from those early chapters in Genesis that movement towards the east symbolizes movement further away from God. So if you just kind of like imagine it on a map, right, this tabernacle lying there, lying it, and with a north-south oriented map, uh, of course, the east is the side on the right, right? If you walk away, that is further to the east, you're getting further and further from the entrance. And if you're traveling west, you enter in on the east. So that is where the, the entrance is oriented 
Um, another kind of fun fact about this, and I forget whether I've mentioned this before or not, but whereas we tend to think of the, the up direction on a map being north, um, the ancient Israelites conceived of it of the east as the up direction. And so the same word for left is sometimes used of the north, uh, that is semol. Um, yamin, the, the word for right hand, is often the south. And uh, in front is is the east, and then behind, Acharei, is often the west or towards the sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but that's just a little bit of bonus content. Okay, um, next we learn about how uh, the uh, actual priests are to be decked out. So we learn, first of all, about this special oil that's going to be used, and tomorrow we'll learn a little bit more about that. Um, but uh, it, it, it says first that this is going to be, that these rules are going to be for Aaron and his sons. You get that in, in uh, verse 21. And uh, they are the ones who, who keep the, the uh, who tend to the lampstand in the temp- temple uh, or tabernacle, keeping it lit morning and evening before the Lord. Um, but their priesthood is a sta- is going to be a statute forever throughout the generations of Israel. So that is, um, within Israel, as we will see, it hasn't been established yet, but the entire tribe of Levi is set apart as a special, um, I guess you could say a kind of a holy tribe that lives among the people and um, attends specifically to religious matters among them. Uh, but within them... You recall that um, you know Aaron is just one member of the tribe of, of Levi. Those who are descended from Aaron and his descendants, those who are descended from him, will be the priests. So in order to be an actual priest in ancient Israel, you must be descended from Aaron. And such, of course, is the case with his sons, uh, Nadav and Avihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. This is God's choice to have people who are from this, and, and it is his call as to who gets to enter. Um, so that's just how he sets it up. Um, yeah, uh, and that, that, of course, does become a little bit of an issue with, uh, with the Israelites later on, where they begin, begin to become, there, there seems to be some jealousy that crops up about this, uh, but we're not there yet. Um, I also love how several times in this, and you see it for the first time in chapter 28, verse 2, when it talks about the garments of the priests that are to be made, it says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother. So these are holy clothes. They're to be dedicated, like they can't wear them home, right? These are to be dedicated only for the um, the priests to wear in the, um, the holy precincts. Uh, but it says, you're to make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, Okay, so they're to be beautiful and they're to be for glory, which I take to mean something like corresponding to God's glory. That when when you might look at it, you might be you might remember that our God is a God who dwells in glory. There is something fitting about the symbolism here in their outfits that uh, that that is to remind people of God. And uh, the high priest has a different clothing than the other priests. So Aaron himself, who is going to be the first high priest, um, wears this. And it, it's composed of a, uh, a robe, and then um, over the robe, what is called an ephod, which is uh, kind of this thing that's attached on the shoulders over the robe. 
and then over the ephod a breast piece that is um, uh, that that will be on the uh, obviously on the chest. <laughs> there is a coat, there is a turban, and there is a sash. Um, so, um, yeah. So let's talk about a little bit of uh, of these things. So. The ephod um, has on the shoulders the prominent aspect of it, and this is the weirdest implement because we don't really have an ephod today. I'm not even sure where the term comes from. Uh, it is a, a transliteration of the Hebrew. Um, but uh, but in, on the shoulders are to be, each shoulder has an onyx stone on it, each with, the, with six of the names of the tribes of Israel. Uh, in a setting of gold filigree. If you don't know what filigree is, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you take this fine thread of gold and you weave something real fancy with it. Um, and, uh, and, and this is said so that they shall, so that he shall, it said, shall bear the names of, of the tribes of Israel before Yahweh. That's chapter 28, verse 12. So as he comes into the presence of God, it's like this symbolizes on whose behalf he's there. Um, for for whose behalf he is there. Um, not too good at stringing together sentences apparently today. Um, the breast piece is interesting. It's called a breast piece of judgment. Okay, and on it are going to be four stones, uh, four rows of stones with three stones in each row, and there are all these different um, uh, precious stones. And also on those are on each stone are the names of the tribes of Israel engraved. So the names of the tribes of Israel are engraved in two places on the priest's uh, outfit. And, um, and again, so that he shall bear their names over his heart when he goes into the holy place, chapter 28, verse 29. Now in this breast piece is, um, are, is this, um, this set of implements that are called the Urim and the Thummim. And um, these become, uh, the, it becomes evident as we read on, that these are ways of of the priest consulting the will of God. It's a little unclear exactly what they are. Um, I'm not, um, to my awareness, there is no kind of like scholarly consensus on exactly what these things were and how they functioned. Um, there are different uh, there are different theories as to what they may have been, um, but they're never really described in the in the um, Old Testament. Although there is a passage, First uh, Samuel fourteen forty one, where Saul is trying to consult the Lord to determine uh, uh, the guilt for this kind of ridiculous thing that <laughs> Saul had did, um, but um, and he says, if the guilt is in Jonathan, give Urim, but if the guilt is in your people, give Thummim, and so the idea is basically uh, it's a it's an it appears to be that there's an answer. Um, that could be obtained like a, a yes or a no, or you know, one of two choices. And um, this is the closest thing to divination that is um, allowed in the Bible. Now, divination, of course, we we definitely shudder at that. But I think technically in religious studies, uh, as far as I'm aware, this is what it's called when you uh, expect an answer back from God. Uh, by means of of uh, some kind of natural object, uh, this is rampant throughout the ancient world. There's lots of other kinds of divination. Um, priests would examine the organs of um, of an- of animals that were sacrificed in order to divine things. They would observe drops of oil on water. They would patterns of smoke. 
dropping arrows on the ground and seeing the configuration that they form in all kinds of different elaborate way, means of divination. Um, but uh, the Old Testament prohibits that and instead prefers prophecy, which um, is obviously a much more specific way of receiving revelation from God. But this, along with the occasional casting of lots, appear to be what is authorized in the Old Testament. And I will just say that this is probably why the breast piece is called the breast piece of judgment. It isn't judgment in the sense of that we typically, uh, that our minds typically go to, right? Judgment for sin, right? It means you're basically going to have to pay, a, 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 you're, you're, you're giving your just retribution for something you've done. Um, but judgment meaning you need to judge between these two things, or you need to, so judgment in the, um, you know, in the, in the sense of making a decision, all right. Now, as for the robe, the robe is uh, blue, um, and it ha it is uh, surrounded with these pomegranates and and bells all around it, and um, it says in uh, in verse thirty five that this is uh, on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Um, it, it is ambiguous exactly what that means, um, uh, but um, but it is he's supposed the, the high priest is supposed to be heard inside the temple. Um, uh, one theory for this is that this is symbolism of like uh, of Yahweh's privacy that um, that so that his presence is made known to the Lord, like. You can't. There's no. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but if you think of like like a king in his chamber, which is kind of like what the holy of holies is, and his primary attendant is outside, uh, he wants to know that he's there. Now that is one theory of it. I'm not saying that that's definitely what that is, and if that is the case or something like it, it it is as with most of the things in the tabernacle, symbolism. Okay, it's it's not. Like, like as if God doesn't know the priest is in the holy place when he's ministering. Okay, but um, that appears to be appear, appears to be uh, what that is. Um, okay, and then and then you have the turban, and what we're told about the turban is that there's going to be a there's to be a plate on it, um, on which upon which is inscribed the words "Holy to the Lord," and um, and. And this is a a um, a pure gold plate, and it says that it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Now, that concept of bearing guilt is an interesting one, and as far as I can tell, it means different things in different contexts. Um, it literally means uh, it, it lit literally would be translated to lift up guilt. Okay, and um, uh, there's sometimes it does seem to mean something like bear the penalty for one's guilt, but another um, seems to mean also that you are uh, responsible for the removal of of guilt. Um, and um, if you think about it, the concept definitely can maybe encompass both things. So uh, bearing guilt uh, could mean it, it means that you're you're dealing. This, this guilt that has incurred is being dealt with in one way or the other. It's either being dealt with through punishment or it is being dealt with 
um, through sacrifice, through atonement in particular. So, but, um, so the idea is that the, it is the high priest's responsibility to deal with the, uh, the, the sin of the people which, and here's something we'll see more as we go through the Old Testament, which kind of attaches to the holy things that are in the midst of Israel. So in other, so in other words, when the Israelites sin, and, um, and in all their uncleanness, you've got this super holy zone, like smack dab right in the middle of them, and it gets contaminated by sin, by the presence of sin. And it's the priest's responsibility then to deal with that so that these holy things can maintain their holiness. Um, and uh, again, I feel like I can't say this enough, we need to stress this, the idea that a lot of this is symbolic in nature, okay? It isn't as if sin is like a germ that's in the air, and or, or guilt is, a, is, a, is something that's in the air and is just caught by proximity. Um, but, in, but we are encouraged to kind of think of it like that because of the idea that you have God and his stuff placed in the midst of people who are unclean and sinful, right? And so if you want to, to teach exactly why it is that we can't all just hang out with God like willy-nilly, right? The, the reason why God is in our presence and yet dis, so distant from us that we can't even go near unless all these requirements are met is teaching us about the seriousness of our sin and how that compromises um, our fellowship with God, so it's what these symbols teach that is significant, but the symbols are to be upheld, right? It's not like they could be like, oh, we get what it means, so now we don't have to do this stuff. No, you absolutely must do it, and the fact that you absolutely must do it is itself symbolically significant, that that this, that this you, you cannot approach God unless you do it in a way that he has declared you are to do it. Okay, finally, the last thing that we read about in Exodus today is Aaron's sons, and their clothing is described in much less detail. They're given coats, sashes, and caps, again, for glory and for beauty. These aren't—it's not trash just because they're not the high priest, um, and uh, they are to be anointed and ordained. We will see um, uh, this more tomorrow. Um, uh, the The— ordination process is uh, is going to be described and also their consecration making it so that they um, so that they they are atoned for and can do the ministry within the um, holy areas um, and the interesting last thing is that they're to wear linen undergarments lest they bear guilt and die okay so there's something uh, so what this what this appears to mean is probably what it sounds like, right? So they're wearing these robes, and uh, and and they're they're and these coats, these sashes and caps, um, and they are well, as we might say, commando would be like the standard way of doing it, right? And uh, but the place, the entire area is holy, and so there's nothing between their parts and the holy ground that is now there because this is the, that is now established because the tabernacle is there and so they're to wear linen to um to to contain themselves to 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 put something between them and the ground and uh, this is probably similar to that thing that we saw with the solitary altars at the end of chapter 20 where there's not to be steps 
um, going up to the alt, uh, a solitary altar. That is not an altar that's in the tabernacle, okay, if you recall. And uh, it says, Let, um, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So that seems to be the idea there. And um, uh, one thing that I'll say, and I'll describe this more when we talk about impurity, but um, again, we shouldn't think as if these are some like transcendent laws of the universe and God just can't handle it, right? Instead, it's God wants them through their cultural symbols and the things that they view as significant um, to understand what he, who he is, and these he wants he wants them to understand things about him, and he's going to use their their cultural norms to do that, and so it's it's kind of like I remember when I was a kid, um, we used to wear hats like l- little boys do, right, and we'd come to church or to like the little boys group that that we did, you know, with like um, this is like elementary school and stuff. Uh, we had this thing called Stockade, which is kind of like a Christian Boy Scouts, which I, I really liked when I was a kid. Um, and you'd wear, and we'd wear hats, of course, a, a lot of us. Uh, um, but when it was time to pray, <laughs> it's time to take off your hat. And if you don't take off your hat when you're praying, you could bet that any leader sitting near you is going to take it off for you. Now, why? Because God cares about whether or not we wear hats? No. But because in our culture it is a sign of respect, it is it is, and so like you would take your hat off if the uh, well at least uh, past generations maybe I don't know if it still would be done right, uh, but even today we see it that in in really I guess you could say uh, sacred type settings. Uh, hats are typically removed. Like you probably wouldn't wear a baseball cap to a wedding. Or think of it this way: when before a, a baseball game, uh, when the national anthem is being sung, what do the players do with their hats? They remove them and they put them over their hearts. It's the same kind of thing. It isn't that there's um, like an, an something objectively morally wrong with wearing a hat. It's just that it has come to be shown as a sign of certain like casualness uh, wearing a hat, especially wearing a baseball hat, um, and when you have a solemn moment, you're to take it off. So I think that's the kind of th- a helpful way to um, to kind of conceive about these these rules that we might think are a little bit are a little bit silly, um, or or we're not really sure why. Um, with something like this, it seems very much that something like that is the case. All right, now let's turn to Psalm 24. Again, another Psalm of David. And here, the thing that's established first is that the earth is Yahweh's and everything that is in it, all that fills it, the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth is Yahweh's. Yahweh, the Lord God, is not just this national deity of Israel and, you know, you go outside of the promised land and, oh, now we're in someone else's, some other deity's domain. No, everything that is in the earth belongs to the Lord and um, all that is in it. And uh, given who God is and that he is this mighty king, who shall ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? An interesting thing, given what we're reading in Exodus, right? Where we see all these, like, this holiness and, okay, only only Aaron can uh, can come near him. But now it's, it's who shall ascend to the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And it turns out that it's it's not simply a matter of being ritually clean, 
even though that is an important thing in the system of worship we're seeing uh, gets that which is being set up in our readings in Exodus and which will continue throughout the Pentateuch, especially in Leviticus. Okay, it's not just about doing the right rituals. Although I don't think like a a godly person could just flaunt those and say they don't matter in in the Old Testament, right? Um, but it's actually so. It's, there's actually a deeper, more more profound thing that the person who can truly approach God. Um, uh, there, there, there are qualities that that this person possesses, namely, he who has a clean hand, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. Okay, so it's somebody who is who is pure of heart and upright in spirit and and righteous, um, and and to him he will receive blessing from the Lord. Um, and then the psalm turns um, and addresses actually the gates. Um, I, it could be, I think, when it talks about the hill of the Lord, I'm. Uh, this most likely refers to Jerusalem, Zion, which is on a hill, and uh, it is a city that has gates. And so, and so here is a, a song to the gates of Jerusalem to welcome the Lord there. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? Do you think it's David? Nope. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And in case you forgot it from verse 8, who is the King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Uh, yeah, that's how the psalm ends. And just by the way, I don't think I've talked about this yet, but this this word that we do read a read in a bunch of psalms, selah, this is um, an untranslated Hebrew word, right? It's selah in Hebrew, and I don't think anybody really knows what it means. It's clearly like some kind of liturgical term. At least I think that's what the evidence favors. But in terms of like what it actually means, like repeat or refrain or anything like that. I don't really think anybody, to my knowledge, nobody's really demonstrated this. So, um, but it is it is part of part of the psalm, uh, and of course, it's it's not the only musical term or poetic or liturgical term that we encounter in the psalm, but it is a very common one. Okay, now let's go to Mark chapter five, uh, beginning in verse twenty-one here. So uh, Jesus now crosses um, to the he is. He has just been um, at a place, the Gerasenes, um, which he arrived at through by crossing the Sea of Galilee, and then now he crosses again in the boat to the other side, and um, a, a ruler of the synagogue, so a one of the leaders of the synagogue, and in case you don't know, synagogue is a place, a lo- like a local gathering for Jewish people, and of course this area is very Jewish, Galilee. And uh, there's a bunch of synagogues there, but a local synagogue uh, ruler or leader there whose name was Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And um, anyone who has, especially a father who has a little daughter, I've got four of them, can know what how heartbreaking of a scene this is, just imagining this, that your little child, um, who is 12 years old, will later tell, uh, I've got a 12-year-old daughter right now, and um, 
I would be heartbroken if something like this happened. So this is just, uh, this man is just broken and um, comes imploring Jesus when he hears Jesus is around. But it's interrupted by a um, a thing, uh, another little event that happens where a woman who has a discharge, um, who has had a discharge for many years comes up to him, 12 years to be exact, uh, notice the girl is 12 years old and this woman has had a discharge for 12 years. I'm not sure what the connection is there or if it's just a coincidence, but um, I note it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she's spent all she's had on physicians trying to get better, but it's only gotten worse. And she says, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And remember, um, well, I, I don't know if this is that clear yet from, from the Old Testament, but um, remember from when we saw the leper in chapter 1, uh, 40 through 45, where Jesus touches him, and that is a shocking thing, because these are people who are, you know, not just sick, because leprosy, um, which is, um, it can, de- in the Bible, it can denote a variety of different skin conditions. Today, we think of leprosy as restricted to Hansen's disease, uh, but it's it's probably broader than that as well. Um it's not so much that leprosy is contagious, it's that it renders a person unclean, ceremonially unclean, not not able to worship God, and um, at least according to Old Testament law. More to be said on that when we come to it in Leviticus, but here too, right, having a bodily discharge, as we will see, renders a person unclean, and if it's just this perpetual discharge for this many years, oh my goodness, and the concern is that like you're not supposed to touch people and if you do you transmit that uncleanness but she comes up to Jesus and she touches and she's immediately healed and so Jesus turns around and he's like who touched me as if he doesn't know and his disciples I love their answer he's like they're like look at this crowd and and you're wondering who who touched you they're it's like duh Jesus um of course Jesus knows and and the woman comes to him trembling and falls down and takes hold of him, and she says to him, "He says to her, um, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." And just this this idea that um, that it is it is her faith that has has healed her. It's her trust in the Lord, and uh, more on this in a, in a minute or so. Uh, but also far from it making Jesus unclean actually makes her clean. And not just clean, but healed. Okay, so then he gets to the uh, place where he's going, and um, as he's as he's going there, messengers come from this guy's house, from Jairus's house, and it's like, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your, your daughter has died. Um, what, what troubling news, right? And then... Um, and then... Uh, Jesus turns to the guy and he's like, do not fear, only believe. And it's interesting, right? Because uh, he, he, what did he just call the woman whom he healed? He called her daughter and he just healed her. And now he looks at Jairus and he's like, like this is definitely a taller order. Your daughter has died, but your daughter, um, if I cared for this woman like this and I was able to help her, believe. And remember, note there, uh, in the New Testament, the words believe and faith are all from the same root. These are these are all kind of the same words, right? And it is her faith that made her well. And now he's challenging, 
he's challenging him, believe. And so they arrive at the house, and he takes with him his inner three, Peter, James, and John. And he comes in, and he's like, why are you all weeping? She's, she's sleeping. And they all laugh at him. And then he, he has them, he, he goes into the room by himself with, with just those who, whom he's taken with him. And uh, he, he, he looks at her, and he takes her by the hand. He takes her little lifeless hand, and he says, Talitha, kumi, which means, Mark then translate, little girl, I say to you, arise. And that's interesting, right? Because why does Mark leave that untranslated? Like, it's not like he's he's telling us the Aramaic of all this other stuff Jesus is saying. It's it's probably, I, I mean, I think, I think maybe we don't know 100% for sure, but I think a plausible explanation is because Jesus is making a disciple out of this man and his family. And these years later, when Mark is writing his gospel, he is able to go to Jairus and they're able to tell him these words that just blew their eardrums out of their sockets, right? When he took his lifeless daughter by the hand and told him, little girl, arise. And, uh, and immediately, there we have Mark's favorite word, <laughs> immediately, the girl got up and began walking, and we're told she's 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. There we have the messianic secret again. And then finally, we see Jesus come to his hometown, to, Sabbath, to, to, to Nazareth, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the people there are like, Obviously, Jesus is wildly popular, and Mark's made the point of telling us many times, and 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 his and his works and his teachings are preceding him. But the people in his hometown, they're like, "This is Jesus, the carpenter, the 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 son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon." By the way, the fact that he's called the carpenter here and the son of Mary most likely indicates that Joseph um, has passed away by this point. Um, but yeah, and they're like, where does he get this wisdom? Where do he get these mighty works? And they take offense at him. This is the same word that's often translated, they stumbled. Um, they, well, the, the, the actual word um, here in the Greek is skandalizonta, which is from which we get our word scandal, right? They're scandalized. So of course, we don't want to read our meaning back into them, but you get the point, right? Like, like they're, they're kind of like offended by this. And uh, he does no mighty works there. Um, and it's because of their unbelief, right? What did he just say to this woman? Your faith has made you well, daughter. And then he turns to Jairus. He says, believe. And now these people don't. And Jesus does not do his mighty works there. And then Mark ends this episode by telling us that Jesus went about their villages teaching. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for joining me. Again, I, as I always say, I look forward to uh, sharing with you some more tomorrow. And until then, take care and bye-bye.